What I want to do today, and what I want to do nine more times over the course of this year, is have 10 standalone sermons that correspond to the 10 promises in our church covenant. If our statement of faith is what we believe, then our church covenant is a summary of how we aim to live by God's grace. How it is that we aim to love, encourage, and guard one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, well, then I hope that you pay close attention because what you hear from the Bible this morning may very well be different than perhaps some of your own experiences in the past, and it's certainly going to be much different than what mainstream media will tell you Christians and the church is. At least I hope that's the case. I also recognize that in teaching this morning that we are getting into kind of the warp and the wolf of our lives. And in, whenever you do that, things get a little messy because there have been wounds and there have been bad experiences and there is sin and yet there is hope in Christ. The first promise that we're dealing with in our church covenant is the promise of unity that we will eagerly pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and we will pray for one another as scripture requires. It is all about unity. That's why we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. And I know that there's a number of you that you're here this morning and you bear the scars of bad church experiences, of broken fellowship, and of being sinned against, and even perhaps even the shame of knowing that you have sinned against others. Perhaps there are relationships that have not yet been reconciled. Perhaps this church is one, as I know it is for some of you, one of many churches that you've been a part of. And all of us, when we come to a church, we have what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a wish dream. Everything that we really hope and dream that church will be like. All of the ways that it's going to meet our needs for companionship and for fellowship, for spiritual vitality and growth. And it only takes a little bit of time before you recognize that that church will fall woefully short of whatever wish dream you have of it. In fact, even Spurgeon went so far as to say that even if I were to find the perfect church, the moment that I join it, it would then become the imperfect church. That's the reality that all of us live in. And yet I recognize that there are, for some of you, deep wounds in here. And I hope that what we see this morning would not only be a breath of fresh air and a healing balm for you, but would perhaps move you out of a state of fear or of frustration or of bitterness and into the freedom of Christ in such a way that you would enjoy a new and vital and joy-filled relationship with Christ church. If you are a prospective member of our church, if you've gone through membership at some point, we've given you a little book called What is a Healthy Church? A little bitty tiny book. And in that book, the author gives a parable of the nose and the hand. I know if some of you remember this. If you don't, I know you didn't read the book and you're in trouble. Here's how it goes. Nose and hand were sitting in the church talking. The morning service, led by ear and mouth, had just ended. 
The hand was telling nose that he and his family had decided to look for a different church. Really? Nose responded to Han's news. Why? Oh, I don't know, Han said, looking down. He was usually slower to speak than other members of the church body. I guess because the church doesn't have what Mrs. Hand and I are looking for. Well, what are you looking for in a church, Nose asked. The tone in which he spoke was sympathetic, but even as he was speaking to them, he knew that he would dismiss Han's answer. If the hands couldn't see that nose and the rest of the leadership were pointing in the right direction, well, then he could do without them. Hand had to think before answering, and he and Mrs. Hand liked Pastor Mouth and his family, and Minister of Music Ear meant well. Well, I guess we're looking for a place where people are more like us, Hand finally stammered. We tried spending time with the legs, and we didn't really connect with them. Next, we joined a small group for the toes, but that didn't really interest us. Then we attended the Sunday school for all the facial features. Do you remember? We came several Sundays a couple months ago. Yeah, it was great to have you. Well, thank you. But everyone just wanted to talk and listen and smell and taste. And it felt like, well, it felt like you never really wanted to work and get your hands dirty. Anyway, Mrs. Han and I were thinking about going to that new church over on the east side. We hear they do a lot of clapping and hand-raising, which is closer to what we need right now. Hmm, Nose replied. I see what you mean. Well, we'd hate to see you go, but I guess you have to do what's good for you. At that moment, Mrs. Hand, who had been caught up in another conversation, came to join her husband and Nose. Hand briefly explained what he and Nose had been talking about, after which Nose repeated his sadness at the prospect of losing the hands. Mrs. Hand nodded in agreement. She wanted to be polite, but truth be told, she wasn't sad to be leaving. Her husband had made just enough critical remarks over the years that her heart had begun to reflect this. No, he had never burst into an open tirade against the body. In fact, he usually apologized for, quote, being so negative, as he called it but the little complaints that he let out here and there had had an effect. The small groups were a little cliquish. The music was a little out of date. The teaching wasn't entirely to their liking. And in the end, it was hard for them to put their fingers on it, but they finally decided that the church wasn't for them. In addition to all that, Mrs. Hand knew that their daughter, Pinky, was not comfortable with the youth group. Everyone was so different to her. She felt out of joint. Mrs. Hand then said something about how she appreciated Nose and the leadership, but the conversation had already run too long for Nose. Then he thanked Mrs. Hand for her encouragement, repeated that he was sorry to see him go, and then turned and walked away. Who needed the hands anyways? Apparently, they didn't need him. I imagine that if you've been in or around the church for any amount of time, then this parable comes a little close to home, either for you or for somebody you know, but life in the body can be hard. And Paul knows this. God knows this, which is why through Paul, he inspired Ephesians chapter 4. And it's all about unity. What does it mean? How do we go about maintaining it? Practically, how does that work out? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to begin in Ephesians 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And that's going to lay a kind of theological foundation. 
And then I want to jump over to 1 Corinthians 12, because there Paul's going to use the exact same theological foundation, but he's going to flesh it out a little bit more practically. So we're going to be looking at two places this morning, Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. Just take a look at Ephesians 4. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice what he says at the very beginning. I therefore urge you. That therefore is pointing back to the first three chapters. As is typical in all of the letters that Paul's, Paul writes, he begins with the doctrinal and then he moves to the practical. Or as some theologians put it, he begins with the indicative and he moves to the imperative. In other words, on account of all that is true of what God has done in Christ and of who you are in him, therefore live this way. Therefore, because of grace, live in these ways. Well, here he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That idea of walking worthy. Walk is just your way of life. You can tell who somebody is by the way that they walk. It's their gait, their swagger. If you would have known my grandfather, then you would have known who he was just by the way that he walked. He had a swagger to him. He put his shoulders back and he loved to say, and if you saw him coming, you knew exactly who he was. That is Stu Hepburn because he had a certain kind of walk. The same is to be true for the church. There is to be something characteristic about us that when we walk in a certain way, people go, oh, that's the church. I can recognize it anywhere. That's how the church walks. Well, that's what he's saying here. You're to walk, but walk how? To walk worthily, in a manner worthy. So we are identified by our walks. It characterizes us. And we're to live our entire way of life. That's summarizing our walk. Our, our entire way of life is to be lived worthily. But worthily of what? What are we walking worthy of? Well, Paul goes on in the second part of verse 1. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is he talking about here? What's the calling? Well, God's plan of salvation in chapter 1 is that one day God will unite the entire universe in Christ. And then he moves on to chapter two and he says, God has already united Jews and Gentiles into one new man, the church. And then at the beginning of chapter three, he says the purpose or the calling of this church is to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the entire universe. So make no mistake, local churches like this one, though the world might be tempted to overestimate us, or underestimate us and overlook us, is at the very center of all of God's redemptive work in the world. It's at the very heart of his plan and his purposes. In other words, let me summarize it this way. God's calling for the church is to show in our life together how Christ is qualified to be the uniting force for the entire universe. We show how Christ is qualified to be the uniting force for the entire universe when we practically display his power to do the same in our churches. How do I know that Christ is qualified to unite all things? Look at what he's doing in the churches. That's the point of chapters one through three. In other words, North Point Church has been called to be the public display of the glory and the grace of God in Christ, who is qualified to unite all things 
that we witness to him in his glory, in his grace, in the way that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But how are we to do this? What does this walk look like? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2. He says, you're to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, first of all, that we are to walk in all humility. That was countercultural then, and that is countercultural now. It means lowliness. Elsewhere, Paul puts it this way, Philippians 2, that to walk in humility is to consider other people more important than yourself, that your needs are more important than my needs and my wants. That's humility. We are servants. And notice what he says. It's not just a little bit of humility, but it is, quote, all humility. We don't want to just consider some people more important than ourselves. We don't just aim to serve some people some of the time. No, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So we aim by God's grace to do the exact same thing. We consider all people more important than ourselves. So we are to walk with all humility. But notice we're also to walk with gentleness. He says, and gentleness. So it's coupling it with humility. A gentle spirit is one that is never over-impressed with a sense of self-confidence. Elsewhere in the New Testament, gentleness is, is ascribed to Jesus. See that in 2 Corinthians 10. It's also ascribed to the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. It belongs to the Spirit. And if Jesus and the Holy Spirit are gentle then gentleness cannot be weakness. It must be strength. And so the gentle person is strong enough to not need to assert themselves or to dominate over others or to have their ideas always win. They're not touchy or resentful and they never retaliate. They're gentle. But he goes on, he says, also, we are to walk with patience. Some of your translations say steadfastness. I think the King James version is best, long suffering. It's when you look at people that are hard to get along with, and you go, you're going to make me suffer for a really, really long time, aren't you? That's what patience is. Patient people are able to bear up and persevere under hard circumstances because patient people don't define reality by whatever is happening in that particular moment. Instead, they endure present circumstances with a long view toward God's promises for the future. And that shapes their present and it shapes how they treat other people. Listen, I may not really like you right now and you may really be getting on my nerves right now, but I know that God is at work in you. I know the work that he's doing in you and I know the work that he's gonna complete in you and I'm gonna love you and serve you and treat you as if that's more true than what you are right now. I'm gonna be patient. And that patience works itself out in this final characteristic in verse two, that we bear with one another in love. If you were to put that in a modern translation, we go something like this, we put up with one another. It's exactly what it means. And it expands on this idea of patience. That in bearing with one another in love, we back off from condemning others and pointing out all of their faults, whether personally, publicly, or even privately in our own hearts. That is not to deny the fact that there is sin in the church. There is. And it is not to deny that each of us won't be at some point sinned against or that we won't at some point sin against others. 
That is just reality on this side of the resurrection. And we need to just know that. Otherwise, we end up having an overly optimistic view of the church in this age. But to bear with one another in love is to walk with the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. The reason that we do a prayer of confession every Sunday is because that's reality. We want to define reality. We have a great and glorious God and we are not much like him. And yet we have a gracious savior who has freed us from our sin. We've been forgiven and now is transforming us little by little over time to look more like him. And so we bear with one another in love. And every week when we gather and that prayer of confession comes, it's a time for us to go, oh yeah, we all need grace. All of us got to bear with one another in love because that's true of me and that's true of everybody here. We need Jesus and we've got to bear up in love. It's not ironic that the beginning of this section and the end of this section, or it begins, the book ends, is in love. You see it there in verse two and you see it again in verse 16. But I want you to notice that all of these that we see in verse two, they're all active qualities. They're not passive qualities. They imply that every member is taking personal and practical steps to foster the unity and the camaraderie with other people in their church. So Paul is here urging us. He's urging us with all the urgency of one sitting in prison for the sake of the gospel. I am urging you to walk worthily. And our walk looks like the traits that we see in verse two. And all of those traits in verse two are musts if we're going to be able to do verse three. That is, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If verse 3 is the cake, verse 2 is all the ingredients. You can't have one without the other. So if we're going to get from verse 1 to verse 3, I urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, then we need to walk like we see in verse 2. That's Paul's point. But notice here, eager, that participle, eager, or some of your translations say, and I think it's a better translation, make every effort. That modifies the main verb in verse one. That is to urge. Paul is urging them. Here's the argument. Because God will unite all things in Christ. That was chapter one. And because he has united all of you in the church. That's chapter two. Therefore, I urge you to continually make every effort to keep on maintaining unity. It's true to who you are. This is your identity. That unity that he's talking about in verse three, it points to a reality that we already have in Christ. That's why unity is something that Paul urges us, if you notice here, to maintain, not to create. We are to maintain the unity. It's something that we already possess in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's why it says that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity that we maintain is not a spirit of unity. It is the unity of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the agent that unites us together in Christ. Recall chapter 2, verse 22. You can look back at that if you want. In Him, that is in Christ, you, church, are being built together, united, into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. And so the unity that Paul is talking about, it is a spiritual reality with visible results. And these visible results show a people who are glued together in love for one another. That's the image that Paul paints when he talks about the bond of peace at the end of verse 3. Or perhaps better, the bond which is peace. That peace is not an end in and of itself. It is a means to an end. It forms a bond, a kind of glue that cements members together in Christ. And so what we're meant to see is that peace is first a theological reality, that Christ has already achieved peace through his death. It's something that we maintain. It's something that we already have in Christ. In fact, look back at chapter 2. See verse 14? For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace. He has made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh, that is, in his crucifixion, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. That is, those law of commandments that kept some people out and, as some presumed, kept other people in. He's abolished all of that. How do they come in now? They come in through the cross. So he abolishes the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. Peace is what Christ has accomplished and peace is what he has done in uniting the members of his body together. It is already done. Christ has done it. We now maintain it. It's not something that we whip up and create. And it's not something that we look to the world to engineer. It is something that we look to Christ for because he has already accomplished it. So either we're walking true in light of this identity in Christ, or we are walking in a lie to call ourselves Christians and to not be united to one another because Christ has already done it. Well, this theological indicative is what informs Paul's imperative. That is that the doctrinal shapes the practical. We maintain unity by making every effort to be bonded together in peace. And the source of our peace with one another is Christ. As we just read, Christ is our peace. But then in verses four through six, Paul's going to keep going and he's going to lay the groundwork for further theological realities. Why is it? Why is it so important that we pursue unity with one another? Well, he's going to answer. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who are in all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want you to notice five things about our unity in these three verses. It is doxological, ecclesiological, eschatological. You go, whoa, what are you talking about? Those are big words. I'll explain them in a minute. Doctrinal and spiritual. Five things. I'll say them again, so don't worry about it. First, we are to maintain doxological unity. The Greek word doxa, doxe, means glory. 
And that's what we see here, the glory of God in the church. In chapter 1, we learn that our salvation is the work of the triune God. We are chosen and predestined by the Father. We are redeemed and forgiven by the Son. And we are sealed by the Spirit. Well, here we see that our unity, like our salvation, is meant to reflect the glory of the triune God. In verse 4, notice that we have one Spirit. In verse 5, we have the one Son. And in verse 6, the one God and Father of all. So first and foremost, our unity is doxological. It is to the glory of the triune God. But secondly, we are to maintain our ecclesiological unity. That just means our unity as a church. That we may be many parts, but according to this, we are one body. And every individual part exists for the whole. In fact, if you glance down to verses 14 and 15, you notice there, just as you scan through it, that Christ is the head of the body. And all Christians are united to him as various parts in his body. So we've got limbs and organs and joints and ligaments that are all connected and that are all growing up into the fullness of Christ. We are one body. And so in a very real sense, to be a Christian is to have an out-of-body experience. It is to be ripped from the body of death through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and planted into his body in a new life. That's at the heart of the gospel. So in Christ, we maintain an ecclesiological unity. But thirdly, we maintain an eschatological unity. Eschatology is concerned with final or last things. It is a looking forward hope. That's why we see that we're not only one body, but in verse four, we have one hope. Earlier in the book, Paul explains what that hope is, that all of us share in the same inheritance and all of us have the same power at work in us. And the power at work in us is the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. So our unity is eschatological, that by God's power, he is going to bring unto completion the work that he has begun in us. And we all have that one hope. So it's eschatological. But we also, fourthly, maintain our doctrinal unity. Because the power of God raising Christ from the dead is both the object of our one faith and it is the center of that faith. As you see there in verse 5, we have one faith. That is the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. And so many say that doctrine divides, but Paul begs to differ. Our unity is nothing if not doctrinal. And that doctrine centers on a man who is raised from the dead. So our unity must be doctrinal. But fifthly and finally, we are to maintain our spiritual unity. Not only was Christ raised from the dead, but in a sense, so were we. That when each one of us were brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, we were united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And this spiritual reality is signified in one baptism. And that one baptism is the front door through which every believer comes into the body of Christ. So Paul is urging, if there is any temptation toward unity, stop where you are, look back at that front door, and remember the spiritual reality that is true of every single member of this church. That is that all of you have been crucified with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, and you have been raised with him to newness of life. Our baptism, our one baptism, is meant to be a center point for unity and of a reminder of who we are in Christ. It's at the very heart of the gospel. And it's the entry point into the fellowship of the church. So Paul is 
urging this and every church to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What does this look like practically? How do we flesh this out practically in our own church? Well, for that, I want you to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, just a little bit over to your left. 1 Corinthians 12. If you're in Acts or if you're in Romans, keep going to your right. 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to begin in verse 12. And we're trying to think, how is it that this glorious reality of the church that we see in Ephesians chapter 4 plays itself out practically in the church now? How do we walk in this unity that Christ is already one for us. Well, that's what Paul's concerned with in 1 Corinthians 12. And I want you to notice that the same as Ephesians 4, we see that the church is the work of our triune God in this passage. Look at verse 12. It says, we are the body of Christ. Then in verse 13, we are all baptized into his body by the Holy Spirit. And then if you glance down at verses 18 and again at verse 24, we see the Father arranging each part of the body just as he pleases. So, the, so Christ and the Spirit and the Father are all active together with one will and one mind building his church. That's what he's doing. But then we see in verse 25, God's goal for the church. Just glance at that. Here it is. So that, anytime you see that, that's a purpose statement. That there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. For this vision to be realized, there has to be real unity to the body, even though there's lots of diversity. That's evident all the way up in verses 12 and verse 14. Look at this with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. There is unity and there is diversity. So a body is something that has lots of parts, but has an overarching unity. We have a college professor, Joel Pastor. He's written. Joel, have you been published yet? A couple times you've been published? A college professor has a body of work. He may author lots of books and lots of articles, but all of it forms one corpus of work. All the citizens of the United States are what's called a body politic or a political body. We're different people of different ages and ethnicities and creeds and religions and so on, but together we form one nation, that is one body politic. This is also the case with our own physical bodies, isn't it? We have limbs and organs and muscles and bones, and yet they all make up one body, one person. Well, this is the same that we see here. Look at verse 12. So it is with Christ. Just as it is with our bodies, so it is with Christ. Christ's body is a unity made up of a bunch of diverse parts or a bunch of diverse members. And the reason that God arranged the body of Christ in this way is so that, verse 25, there will be no division. So if I asked you, what is the opposite of division? What would you say? I imagine that many of us would say, well, unity, duh, of course it is. And I think that'd be right. But Paul writes that God has something more specific and even more wondrous in mind than that. Look again at verse 25. Here's the biblical opposite to no division. 
that all the members have the same care for one another. The church is the community where our fellowship means that each and every member is to have fully the same concern and the same care and the same love for every other member of that body. That is the reason that God has arranged us in all these specific combinations. It's as if though God is saying, do you want to destroy cliques and petty group squabbles? Do you want to end ethnic and cultural prejudices and hatred? Do you want to tear down class divisions? Do you want to grow in holiness and joy? Do you want to be sure that no one is left out or lonely or ignored? Do you want to ensure that everybody has their needs met? Well, the way that you do this is for all of us to have the same concern and to show the same care for each other. So what God is saying is don't let your love and your compassion and don't let your hopes for others be limited to some subsection or small group of the whole. You weren't baptized into a small group. You weren't baptized into a ladies Bible study. You weren't baptized into your men's accountability group. You were baptized into a body. This is why in the structures of our church, we tend to emphasize as much of the church getting together as often as we're able And we trust that members individually are organically getting together and doing one another's spiritual good. But we tend to emphasize this. Why? Because we are a body and this is what Christ is or what the Spirit has baptized us into. So don't let your love be partial. Don't let your love be preferential. Your small group isn't your church. Let each of you show equal concern for each other member. This makes sense, doesn't it? This is no duh, makes sense. It makes sense that the opposite of division is equal care. After all, what is division other than the act of leaving someone out? Paul had already rebuked the Corinthian church in chapter 10 for leaving out people from the Lord's Supper. Well, he's emphasizing the same thing here. Division is the act of missing someone or not including someone. So God's vision for North Point Church means no one is left out. Every member of the body is provided for, that every disciple is discipling, and that there are no undiscipled disciples. That's just not his vision for our church. That's his vision for every local church. That is how we avoid people slipping through the cracks, how we avoid people going missing or being absent and unnoticed that when we look around and we go, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while, we give them a call, we shoot them a text, we go, hey, I haven't seen you, is everything okay? How can I pray for you? Do you have any needs that I can meet? But also notice in verse 26, it is the means whereby the body of Christ, it also means that the body of Christ is marked by a mutual empathy. So it's marked by the same care for one another, but that care is characterized by mutual empathy. Verse 26 provides the practical application for verse 25. So whether it's suffering or honor, mourning or gladness, or everything in between, God calls us to share together in all of these experiences. So how will we know if we have equal concern for all members? We'll stick with the body analogy. That if we're a body and we stump our toe on a big rock, what happens? Well, that toe sends a message through the entire nervous system into the rest of the body saying, Ow! My toe hurts! Watch where you're walking! 
Well, then the brain listens to everything that the toast says, and it doesn't matter what else is going on around us in that moment. All of our powers and attention concentrate on that hurting toe, taking care of that toe's need. Well, in the same way, if we're to live out this vision, we need a central nervous system that sends out information to the body about how other parts are doing. And that central nervous system is a bunch of, of relational synapses and connections that flow throughout this church. Somebody can't be friends with everybody, but everybody should be friends with somebody. And as those relationships grow and connect, then that central nervous system gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And as pain and needs in the body are made known, the whole body shifts its attention to those members. And we pray for them, and we text them, and we call them. And if there are any practical needs, we sacrifice from our own possessions to provide for them. I've seen this time and again in this own church, whether it's for uh, benevolence to, to families who had a hard time paying bills, whether it was to... to, to uh, Mamas who just had new babies, whether it's to those in our community that have need of just going all in, generously giving, hey, what I have is yours, and I love it. May God cause us to continue to grow in grace in that. But I wonder, have any of you at any point received word that something has happened to someone in our church? Perhaps the death of a loved one, as with Daniel Vias. Prolonged sickness, Matt Noble is still in bed. An engagement or a pregnancy, a job promotion. Perhaps you don't know that person really well. Maybe you're newer to the church and that person usually sits on the other side of the sanctuary. Well, they're a left-sider, but I'm a right-sider. I don't really know the right-siders that well. Left side is my crew. You hear the good news about that person, you say, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Or you say, oh, that's really great news. But then you just kind of move on with your life. But what if the report that you receive is about a close friend or an immediate family member? Perhaps that person is a member of your small group who you've grown to know and treasure really deeply. Or maybe the news is about a family member winning a prize or, or being hurt in some way. What would your reaction be? Well, you would immediately spring to action, wouldn't you? You would immediately reach out to them. You would make an immediate visit. That is the understandable and normal reaction. Well, the reaction that comes so naturally when we're concerned about family or close friends is the biblical reaction we should have when we hear about somebody less familiar than us or to us who is part of the body. We should show the same care, equal concern for every member. We rejoice with everyone who rejoices and we mourn with anyone who's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Is this our vision? That when you join this church, or perhaps you prospective members who are aiming to join this church, do you commit to love in this way? Oh, if not, then I hope that in the quiet of your own hearts this morning, that you would never be able to unsee what you've seen in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. And that God's vision would slowly, by his grace, become your vision. But finally, Paul is going to point out here in 1 Corinthians 12, we'd be remiss not to pay attention to it, two threats to the unity of God's church. So if you're here and you have the mind of Christ, you should be thinking up to this point, yes, that is how it's supposed to be. Your spirit is crying out, Lord, make us, make me more like that. 
Oh, we want to have a healthy body. You say, wouldn't that be so beautiful? Wouldn't that be glorious to be in a church like that? I say, amen. That's the right response to God's word about God's church. But you may not be thinking at this moment with the mind of Christ. Right now, you may be reminded of all of the hurts that you've experienced in the church. You might be reminded of the ways that you've been let down or the bad experiences that you've had. You bear on your own body the scars and the wounds of broken relationships and promises, unmet expectations. You may think to yourself, I'm a Christian. I've been one for a long time, yet I've never seen a church operate this way. That sounds really good in theory, but in my experience, that's not even possible. Or you might be here and you may not even be a Christian. And you think none of the Christians that I know participate in churches like that. Well, God identifies two reasons why you and many other Christians may not have yet experienced the kind of unity and love and concern that we see here. 1 Corinthians 12 is going to give us two threats to the vision of life in the body. They're described in verses 15 and 16 and in verse 21. We read about the first problem in verses 15 and 16. Look at that. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, well, then I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. The key phrase in there is, I do not belong. This is the problem of feeling inferior and insignificant. But then Paul points out a second problem in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is the problem of feeling superior and self-sufficient. Both groups, those who feel inferior and those who feel superior, those who feel insignificant, like they don't belong, and those who are self-sufficient and feel like they are God's gift to the church, Both groups of people existed in the Corinthian church and both people exist in the church today and they exist in our church as well. In Corinth, the key issue leading to one or the other of these feelings was whether or not you had a particular spectacular spiritual gift or not. Do you prophesy? Do you speak in tongues? That's earlier in the chapter. Those who didn't have these spectacular gifts thought that they were unnecessary to the body. And those who did have such gifts thought that they were the be-all and the end-all of the body and that they didn't need anybody else. Well, today we can still have those same feelings about spiritual gifts. But we can also have them over other issues like race or how much money we have or gender or age. Perhaps in our own church, we might feel inferior or superior over how much or how little Bible or theology we know or whether others fall into our own little doctrinal tribe, or or whether we fit into theirs. Perhaps you might feel inferior or superior against others based on your marital status. Or if you're married, whether you have kids. Or if you have kids, whether you've had enough kids. Whatever it may be, these feelings of inferiority, I don't belong, and of superiority, I have no need of you, both divide and weaken and destroy the body. They destroy fellowship and they destroy witness. And so whatever it may be in your own life, 
Whether you walk into here on a Sunday morning and you have feelings of inferiority and insignificance and go, I don't even belong here. Or feelings of superiority and self-sufficiency. You look around and you think, I don't even know what I'm doing with these people. Both of those destroy fellowship and witness. If you can identify with either of these feelings, then I need you to listen how God addresses you today. Paul's going to write three things to each group. Three general points applied to both cases. The first one is in verses 15 and 16. Paul says to both groups, you are factually wrong. Your conclusions are errors. Look back at the passage. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You understand what Paul's saying here? To those who think they're unnecessary, God is saying, just because you think you're unnecessary does not make it so. Just thinking so does not make it so. How often do we fall into that error? You think that, but that's because you only think that the prominent parts matter. Well, I can't do what Pastor Jeff does. I just don't have any real role in this body. I'm not like some of those more extroverted types that are always meeting with people. It's all of God's grace for me to get one 30-minute coffee with somebody once a month. I'm just not it. I just don't belong here. Paul says, but you're wrong. And to those who don't think that they need others, God says, well, you're wrong too. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, he says, your thinking in this way runs contrary to God's thinking. So the first thing that Paul does is point out the error in their thinking. Just because you feel a certain way in your relationship to the church does not mean that that is in fact true. We, want to, we know that we're growing in grace more and more when we are relying less and less on I feel and trusting more and more God says. Paul's making the same point here. Second, Paul's going to move on to make this point, verse 17, that every part is necessary for the body. He says that if the whole body were an eye, well, then where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, then where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That if you're here and you feel unnecessary, and you go, I don't belong, and you feel like you just want to abandon the body, According to 1 Corinthians 12, that abandonment will destroy the body. Then verses 17 and 19 teach what it is that makes the body a body, and that's its unity and diversity. You can scan through that. If everyone's an ear or an eye or a mouth, there would be no body. It's the diversity that makes unity possible and meaningful. So with that diversity, without that diversity rather, Without each of you who contribute to the diversity, there is no body. You belong simply by the fact that God has put you there and he has promoted diversity in the body. And diversity is required for the body to be a body. If everybody in the church was exactly the same, there would be no body and the witness of the church would be undermined. That's Paul's argument. Furthermore, notice in verse 22 and 23, we're still in the second argument. Paul reminds those who feel superior and self-sufficient that their weaker brothers and sisters only, quote, seem to be weaker. 
So in the same way that we can't trust how we feel, we can't trust our own perceptions on what we see on the outside of people or in their circumstances. Actually, these weaker members, or so you perceive them, are indispensable. And you, who think you're strong, you are dependent on them. So in our pride, we may think others are less honorable in the church. They're not here as often as us. They're not as committed as me. They don't know as much doctrine or theology as me. They're a little squirrely in these areas. They're really needy. Kind of emotional. I don't know what to do with that. All kinds of ways that we're tempted. Tempted to think that others are less honorable. Actually, according to 1 Corinthians 12, do you notice this? They deserve more honor and they deserve special treatment. It's not the strong ones, the self-sufficient ones that deserve more honor and special treatment. It's those who have less honor. Everything we're saying here in verse 23, when it talks about those that are unpresentable parts, it's probably a euphemism for the private, intimate body parts. What do we do with our intimate parts? Trying to be as discreet as I can. What do we do with our intimate parts? We show their value and we show their necessity and we show our dependence on them by covering them and protecting them. It's overexposure that minimizes the worth of the modest parts. And so it is with the strong and the weak in the body of Christ. Every single part is indispensable. Every single part is needed. And the weaker parts receive even more honor, not less. And the stronger, more presentable parts, no matter how prominent they are, they depend on the others. So if you're one here that thinks that you're fairly sufficient and you look around, you go, I don't really need anybody here. 1 Corinthians 12, God is telling you, you need everybody here. Thirdly and finally, Paul argues that to deny your place in the body or to act independently of other members is to say that God doesn't know what he's doing. Remember, beloved, Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected to make you a part of his body. The Spirit has given you new birth and faith, and he has baptized each one of you into the body. And before the foundations of the world, the Father chose and purposed you and arranged in the body exactly as he pleased. Nothing is by accident, and nothing is a mistake. And if any of you conclude, I don't matter or I don't need other members in this church, then what you're saying in effect is God messed up. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's put me here, but I don't belong. He's placed me around all these worthless folks, but I don't need them. God can really build his church, it seems. Or perhaps we say to ourselves, I'm just a lowly toenail. Who am I to the body? Why would anybody want to be around me? I'm so full of fungus. I'm not even worth anything. Well, on the one hand, these thoughts exhibit our pride. On the other hand, they reveal a lack of contentment with what God has made you to be through Christ and by his spirit. Beloved, listen to me. These thoughts, and I have them too, they slander and they blaspheme God. They pull apart limbs and organs of the body. They hurt Christ's body and they hurt his witness to the world. And they rupture the spiritual fellowship that we're supposed to enjoy with one another. 
until all of us root out these attitudes completely out of our hearts, which will happen one day at the resurrection. But as we actively seek to root this out, we will be, we will be waging a quiet war against Jesus' body as long as we nurture those thoughts and feelings. And so with that in mind, I need all of you to listen to me right now. Christ died and was raised by the power of God so that you can be part of his body. The Spirit has sealed you and has placed you in Christ's body according to the sovereign will of the Father. And the Father has planned from eternity past who you are and how you'll be gifted and how you'll fit into the body and how you will provide the kind of diversity that we need to display the manifold wisdom of God to the universe. And that this is what that means for you. To you who feel unnecessary, you are needed. We need you. The Father has ordained it that way. Christ has purchased it. And the Spirit has sealed it. We need you. You are needed. No more I don't belong. That is a lie from Satan. You belong. Not because you dress the same way or listen to the same music or like the same things as everybody else here. You may look around this room and think, I don't have anything in common with any of these people. But if you share in Christ, we have everything in common. That is our unity. You belong, you belong, you belong, you belong. We need you. I need you. That's the church. But if you're here, and you're one perhaps that feels superior and self-sufficient, you need us. You cannot do this by yourself. And you cannot do this with some kind of homogenous subsection of the church that thinks just like you do and acts just like you do and lives and prefers things just like you do. You need the diversity of the whole body. You need us. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. I need you. You need me. We need each other. That is how God has designed it. It's not just pragmatism. It is divinely ordained so that all of us might give God glory and get home safely to Jesus. That's what the church is for. That's what our unity is for. So why should you make every effort to be here every Sunday morning? Why should you make every effort to be with other members of this church, wherever they are, whether that's small groups or on Wednesday night equip or Sunday evening prayer or at some other time and place? Because you need these people and they need you. When people ask me, why should I gather with the church every Sunday? Why, why is that so important? I say, because you need them and they need you. I don't have a better answer than that. It's 1 Corinthians 12. They need you and you need them. And because you need these people and they need you, and that's true not because you always feel like it, not because it's always apparent. It is true because God said it's true. We trust God says. Not, I feel. I feel will always deceive you. God is not like a man that he should lie. He will never deceive us. This is how we've been wired. 
And when we press into one another and we show the same care for one another and we walk with all humility and gentleness and patience and we bear with one another in love, our unity displays the manifold wisdom of God to the universe and says to the entire cosmos, this is what the Lord Jesus is going to do to the entire universe one day. That's the purpose of the church. Look at us. This is what Jesus is doing to everything. Reconciling all things through the blood of the cross so that the Father might unite all things in the universe in him. Where do I know? How do I know that Jesus is qualified to do that? Come taste and see the grace of God in the church. That's what we want to see. I want you to come and see North Point Church and how they love each other. That's how you know that they're disciples. That's how we know that Jesus' prayer, his, his high priestly prayer in John 17 was answered. He prayed, God, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. Ephesians 2, according to the cross, that prayer has been answered. We are one in Christ. Now we got to live it out. We got to maintain it. That's what we do. And we die to preferences and we die to this is how I want it. And we die to this is when I want to do it. And we go, where are the people at? That's where I'm going. I need them and they need me and I'm going to be there. That's the church. And that is not, sadly, for some of you who have grown up in the church, what you have seen, it is not what you have experienced, and that is not what you've been taught. But this is what we see in God's word. This is why our first promise to God and to one another as a church is that we will eagerly, that is, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's number one. We lose here. Every other promise we make disintegrates and unravels. This is at the very heart of what God is doing in Christ.